as we were, as we were, I had to hit record because um, I just jumped on with Robbie Mendel Collinson here and we were just already um, sharing some really great insight. We, we opened up obviously with coronavirus because, you know, with quarantine, lockdown, still things are opening up slowly. Um, there's still a lot going on and this actually enabled me to be able to sit down with you because Mendel, until now, I was very strict about how I wanted to go. Everything had to be very perfect for me. The way the podcast would go about, I wanted my mics, I wanted my video cameras, I wanted to look good and have these in-person conversations, you know, with what happened into the world, this pandemic, it forced me to like, wait a second, let me go and, and I have to continue making content. I want to continue these conversations. So it right. forced me to open my mind, open myself and say, hey, you know what, it won't be as perfect, but at least I'll be able to continue these conversations, um, which led you to start sharing how it's, you know what, it's, it's, it's a blessing in disguise because the fact is the world it seems like wants this more authenticity. We don't want to look perfect. We don't need perfection. We want raw, we want truth. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly so, right. I think that's very, very true. Like I, we started talking about, you know, with social media in particular, I think Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, there's a real powerful pressure on people to present their best version, the best Photoshop, like we talked about, their earbrushed, sanitized, whitewashed version. And and then, and it's, it's really unfortunately um, created a certain a certain perception that that if we're not our best we can't we're, we're not we're not adequate or we're not there's not there's nothing of us worth sharing unless we can share it in its most perfect form i struggle with that too in terms of creating video content and articles and so forth one of the most interesting interviews that struck me that really changed the way i think about things was an interview with alan dershowitz just after he stepped down from his position in in harvard uh his active teaching and he said something interesting. They asked him, what's your greatest regret? He said, my greatest regret is that I did not publish more. And they said, what do you mean? He said, wow. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of doing things perfectly and really rigorously and giving my best, I held back so much that really I should have put out there because there was something there to be shared. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm really going to take venture one step out. I'm not there yet. And let go, let go of that control of that image, of that reputation, of that perception, of that presentation that I think is so integral to many of us. And it's not necessary. It, to the contrary, Mayor, as you said so well, today people want personal, they want authentic, they want informal, they want to be in your bedroom looking at you performing your pajamas. I mean, that's, I was thinking about it the other day. My kids, we did this like concert with, with Shweki. He, literally he's in his, in, his, in his dining room wearing t-shirt, the sound isn't so great. It's a grainy image. There's not a big production. I'm like, kids, the same song he's singing, just press pause, go on YouTube, and you can watch it. And it's perfect. It's, mass it's beautifully produced. And why? Sure. And there's something about that, I think. I want to get to know him, the person, and see how he is in his element. Yeah, 100%. There is this, it's even now. That's what you do, Mayor. That's what you do. Behind all of the beauty, because you, everything you do is on a high level, really aesthetically, you have a very strong eye for production and aesthetics. It's very clear, uh, including, of course, your own. I mean, you're having a great beard day. But <laughs> I grow mine for those who can. But, but everything you do, um, by the way, let's just remind your viewers something beautiful you told me when I complimented you. You say right back at you because we share the same genes. And I extrapolated for a moment. And I think it's really important commentary for the day that, that that beautiful sentiment is so true from a Hasidic perspective for all of humanity. When you compliment another human being, you're complimenting your own genes because we all come from that original oneness. 
So back to the point, what you do is you break barriers. You remove layers. You actually open windows. That's what you do so brilliantly. You take us into the world of someone who might be homeless or someone who's in pain or that, that unnecessary um, sense of personal space that's sometimes really artificial. And you break it down and you say, give me a high five. I'll give you a hug. Let's, let's, be, let's be real. And I think that's what's so beautiful about what you do. 100%, 100%. And I think um, it's, it's actually interesting because um, even now within the, within the coronavirus, it's, it works to our benefit because what's happening now is when I have a conversation with somebody or on a personal level or even professionally, I'm trying to connect with a, a big time producer in Hollywood or a screenwriter or such. What happens is, is that they actually invite me into their home where in the past I would meet them in some sort of cliche coffee shop and, and we're all very formal. And here I am having coffee with them in their living room while they're in their PJs. It already starts off the relationship on a whole much deeper and, and real level. And, uh, and I think it's, it's taken some time now. And so mm -hmm. now Idafka just tried to like, hey, we can meet up now socially. I'm like, no, I don't want to meet you in person. I want to meet you in your house. But, you know, I think it's, it's been a long time coming because the fact is social media has now been around for what, eight, yeah. 10 years now. The first couple of years, it was new, it was scary. People didn't know how to operate within it. People jumped on board. But after a few, a couple of years, people started to realize the detrimental effects social media had. We only, first we were scared, then we were like, oh my God, we're in right. awe. And then this, then we did some more research on right. this and we're like, really, what, how are the children interacting with each other? We're not, you know, we're spending less time right. eye contact going out. And now it's, it's turned into this phase in which we're realizing how it's affecting our mental health because we're, all we're seeing is comparison, envy, is jealousy of seeing what the other person has, which is so, you know, brought down to a very specific image in which we could able to throw filters on. So it's, it's now a, a powerful tool. And of course, we're gonna delve into the teachings of the Rebbe and the works are based on a lot on, on what he has, you know, taught us. Um, but he was all about how using, saying that the world, the, the, the gifts of God is, is, is the tools, right? And we have the ability to, and sort of like biasy, we're able right. to look at things positive, negative, exactly. use social media for positive or negative. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So let me just come back to, because you're, everything you're saying is really resonant. So a few quick points I wanted to make. One is it's fascinating that in our tradition, as you know, Mayor, we start the davening, we start our prayer service with literally a quote from one of the most virulent anti-Semites in history. Imagine the Jewish community gathers on Sabbath and the first prayer they read is from Mein Kampf. They quote Hitler and Goebbels. Imagine, that's what we do. We say, What are we doing? We're quoting a, a section of the Torah that came out of the mouth of a Gentile prophet who was anti-Semitic his whole mission statement was to curse the Jewish people into oblivion. That was what he was hired to do. He failed miserably. He came back home with a tail between his legs. That's God's sense of humor, by the way. Fantastic. The way in which God deconstructs our enemies is making them into a laughing stock and turning them into a punchline of a great joke. Take mm. the donkey, right? Made, literally made an ass out of, uh, out of, out of Bilam. So the point <laughs> of the matter is... That's great. We quote Bilam because Bilam said something deep. He looked at the Jewish people and he said, you know what, I'd love to curse you, but I can't. You know why? You have a secret sauce. You have the secret recipe to survival. What he saw was the way in which they camped. They set up tent. Each tent was not, uh, did not correspond to the other in that each door was open towards the others, that people could see into each other's windows and doors. Instead, they were not vertically aligned, but 
uh, diagonally aligned, so that actually by design, you could not look into another person's window. When he saw that, he said, you guys have figured out the secret to a meaningful, happy life, which is of course now, we talk about it so much, focus on what you have rather than what you lack, et cetera, et cetera. But he saw that then, and that's what we open with each morning when we pray, because what we're really saying is, everything I need, God, you've given me. I just need to recognize it and unpack it. That was point one. Mm. Point two is very interesting, because you, you, you talked about the, the, you know, getting real. I have a friend who told me this the other day. I thought it was very meaningful. He said, I mean, he's my, one of my best friends. He said that he was dating a girl, and he ended up marrying her. She's a really special person, special human being. She's all qualities. And he said um, he fell in love with her when they were actually dating. They were out at a falafel restaurant. And she, he fell in love with her when she dropped the falafel ball on the ground. Oh, and, 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 he, and he saw the look on her face like, as in, I've been presenting till this moment my very best, but you caught me. Right. And that's when he got a window. <laughs> that look. Into, that it's look. Imperfection. It was the look. That's right. what Right. Exactly. That's what took him. And he said what was so amazing about that was not long after he and she were at a dinner of a really fancy, highbrow society, what aristocrat type of person. They were at the dinner. There's concierges, there's butlers. It's really proper. And this woman is really poised. She's the, ma the matriarch of this home and she's the hostess. And in the middle, by mistake, her finger knocked over a glass. It fell to the ground smashed into a bunch of pieces, but you would never have noticed looking at her and watching her because she didn't even pause for a moment to acknowledge what happened. She continued to speak as if nothing had happened. And when he walked away from that, he was like, what a contrast. Here's right. a person who, 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 who is always in control even when things are going wrong. So you can't really see past. And I think it's, it's interesting because the Hebrew word, the English word face, is, comes from the word facade, which means um, an appearance, but not the real thing. We talk about the facade of something, which mm -hmm. is not reflective of what's on the inside. But the Hebrew word for face, and this is the subject of a book I'm working on now about words, is panim. Panim comes from the word panim, which means the inside, because a face is meant to reflect what's on the inside. And I think it's not, it's not an irony that Facebook is called face, in that it's all about the face you present rather than the person you are. And I think that's where we need to be going there. Amen. And talking about where we're going, I want to hear more about this book, but of course, books in general. Um, what, what, of course, growing up, to give some preface and uh, an idea of, you know, who you are, I'm going to call you Mendel because, you know, we, we're cousins. We grew up down the block in New Haven, Connecticut. And, um, and for all those who are tuning in, Mendel, as of now, is, is, is a leading a fantastic and a beautiful community out in, in the UK, in Bel Belgravia? Belgravia. 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 Never heard of it till, of course, you went. Uh, I think that's how most Chabad people learn about the, ge <laughs> the ge geography of the world is where right. they can pop geography. up in the world. Geography in the world. So there you are. Put it this way. Put it this way. Our Chabad house is on the street of Buckingham Palace. That's Belgravia in a word. Belgravia is, 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 is considered a very posh, aristocratic part of you know, London, central London. And it's nestled among these beautiful neighborhoods like Mayfair, which you may know from the Monopoly game, and sure. Knightsbridge and Kensington. And basically our community is a high, it's a concentration of international Jews who, you know, who are, who are, who, who have settled or made roots in London for a period of time. So that's where we're at. 
Anyway, back to your telling the story. <laughs> so this is, this is the time to, to relax. And so that's beautifully, and what, what I would say, who better to, to find themselves in such a, a, a posh and, and sophisticated neighborhood than yourself, Mendel, because growing up, I would actually admire you, and perhaps I may have mentioned this growing up or not, but then again, who did it as children say, oh, I look up to you face to face. But it was always amazing to see you come back because you were a couple, you know, a couple years older than myself. And I think where I got my, from a very young age, this, this appetite to travel and this curiosity to see the world was through you because you would come back and you would travel the world. You were doing all these outreach programs on behalf of Chabad and possibly extend a couple of weeks and travel yourself, which I found to be extraordinary. And you would come back and you would travel Australia, New Zealand. You went all over Asia and, um, and you would come back. And as you grew older, I also was aware about how your vocabulary grew as well. And someone who grew up in the yeshiva system and this is no way bashing. I think there's many incredible things that, you know, uh, one learns from the, from the system, which we've right. grown up in. One thing you, I think is you lack of is vocabulary, right. uh, English vocabulary to be particular. Uh, but it's something that you worked right. upon and you, and you grew in and, right. uh, and, and something that you truly perfected in. And, uh, and talking about sometimes, sometimes it's hard to get through to the old Mendel because there's all these different words. I have a dictionary close by just to be able to, you know, help understand what you may be uh, saying. So, no, but that being Mayor, said, I, I, Mayor, I also have a <laughs> no, no. Uh, but, 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 but that being said, uh, you've, you've really, you're, um, it's, it was really incredible to see where, you've, you're, where you're growing, who you're leading, the community that you're growing. And besides all of that, how busy that may be, you've been producing quite a few books, one of which is Positivity Bias. And uh, that, that's something that really resonated with me. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's resonated right. with me. No, no, keep, I would love to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, because, I mean, as, as some of you may know, I mean, I, I'm all about positivity. I love looking. I, it's the way I, I operate in the world. Now, of course, there's ups and downs to it, and we could talk about what, what is positivity and what is it not. Does positivity mean always being happy? Does it, not, does it mean shutting off your emotions? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Mendel. But overall, the idea of looking to the world through the lens of positivity, through the work, through the lens of optimism is something that I work on through my own life. I've realized that it wasn't a choice. I just did it. Then life came. I grew up. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, doesn't come naturally to me. And then I chose it. And now later in my, you know, later twenties, early thirties, I've come to realize the power of what, when one chooses this outlook in life, how incredibly that is. Right. So my, I guess That's my question, it's a beautiful, yes. it's a beautiful, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I think we have a time lag. I apologize. It seems like I keep cutting you off. I'm so sorry about that. Coming from, you know, London, I should be more civil. Apologies. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Listen, with the time difference, it may take some time for the Zoom to connect. Uh, so the, for those who are listening, watching, right. I, yeah, we do apologize. Um, but yeah, but, but do, do go ahead. I am curious to know, just off the top of my head, uh, first of all, like what you have a various books, right? You have Seas of Wisdom, one and two. You have Time to Heal and Positivity Bias. How do you go about choosing the types of books you're going to write? Because it seems like Seas of Wisdom, Positivity Bias, okay, I see the connection there. Time to Heal, like where did that come from? How do you go about choosing right. the topics which you delve into? That's a great question. So, okay, very good question. Um, so let, let's go back for a little bit. Because I think sometimes people who do write books, they wanted to write from when they were very young. I think that's definitely the case when it comes to fiction or poetry and the like. When it comes to nonfiction, 
it's a little bit different. You sort of get passionate about something, you immerse yourself in it, and then you say, wait, there's something that touched me, I'd like to share that with others. And you share with people and you start to see how it resonates. I actually, the very first book I set out to write was Positivity Bias. It wasn't called that at the time at all. It was actually far more limited in scope. But when I was learning in yeshiva, it, it was, became very clear to me over time that consistently the Rebbe, our teacher, our mentor, would, 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 would re, re, revisit personalities, characters, events in the Torah and scripture that appear negative, catastrophic, and he would find something redemptive about the individual or the event. We talk about the spies in this week's Torah portion. The Rebbe spoke about it so often. Korach. Uh, Dasan and Aviram, the two infamous mischief makers, anyone and everyone was fear game for redemption. And, and that was the Rebbe's consistent sort of modus operandi. He would find the area worth highlighting, worth, you know, that's instruction, instructive. There's this saying that people tend to view others by their actions and themselves by their intentions. And I think that the Rebbe worked differently. He, he went through the Torah and he looked to the intention. He didn't justify the misguided action, but he said, look where it came from. At the core, we all have a point of goodness and godliness. And there were a few specific stories that really changed me. There's Miriam Basbilga, a beautiful video. You know, if you can Google it, your viewers can, can look it up. There's a six or seven minute clip from Jam Jewish Educational Media with transcripts. And in it, the Rebbe is doing one of these reconstructive surgeries so to speak. Recasting someone who was considered an infamous villainous woman, she married, she converted out, she married a notorious anti-Semite, she was present when the Holy Temple was destroyed, the symbol and epicenter of our holiness and identity and, and so forth, and she had the audacity to take her sandal and beat the altar and scream out to God, challenging God, saying, wolf, wolf, you have devoured their sacrifices, where are you in their time of need? I won't go into the explanation, but essentially the Rebbe broke down in tears when he was describing that at the heart of this woman who made every conscious choice to opt out was a burning, yearning desire to represent her brothers and sisters. So she becomes the poster girl for a Yiddish mama. And when I saw that video and I heard the Rebbe's voice and the way the Rebbe choked up, and by the way, you can tell so much about somebody from what it is that makes them cry. So. I, I, I decided that I, I wanted to um, go through all of the Rebbe's talks that I, could read, that I could and try to identify as many sources as possible like this, which I did. That's where it all began. But like you said, at the time I didn't speak English well and I, and I did <laughs> not write well at all. So I actually, believe it or not, I bought a few books. I went to, I hired a tutor, a lovely, lovely guy, a special soul named Matthew Matisyahu Brown. He lives in Israel today. And we spent many hours. He would edit and he was, he was, he was loving but brutal at the same time. And so I, I, I started to get more into it. And at some point, someone at Chabad.org saw something I wrote, asked me to start writing a column. And then things evolved. And then eventually I got back to what I started, which was this particular book. But I expanded it to 30 different themes which reflect that seminal idea. Seeds of Wisdom. I like to say that people, some people are audio learners, some people are visual learners. I'm a story learner, which means that the most impactful points for me very often come to me by way of a story. It's not a sermon, it's a setting. It's not abstract, it's real. There's a name, there's a place, there's a reality. There, and, and that to me is what's so beautiful about, um, about the, the interactions we now have about the Rebbe, the audiences, the encounters. 
because it's one thing to preach, it's quite another to embody those teachings in real time. And that's what Seeds of Wisdom hope to capture in short form. You know, we do live in an ADD reality where people's attention span shrinks literally by the year. So Seeds oh, totally. of Wisdom was an attempt to encapsulate and essentialize those stories. It's time to heal. Some books you choose and some books choose you. With the Time to Heal, I didn't write it from the inside out, thank God. I know most or many books about healing, about loss and tragedy come from someone who lived it. And Baruch Hashem, that book did not come from that type of experience, thank God. Okay. Um, it came actually from a very brutal period uh, in, in, in time where the Jewish community was hit with like many, many tragedies one after another. There was a little child who was, who was, uh, was kidnapped in Borough Park, if you recall. There was a massacre in Itamar. And, and more and more, at the time I was an editor of Chabad.org, so I would see that people were looking for something. They wanted a response. They wanted some direction. How should I think? How should I feel? What does Judaism say to me in this situation? So I started to write an article, and then I realized it's not one article, and I wrote a second, and I realized it wasn't a second, and it ended up becoming a book. And I have to tell you that while it's not a bestseller in the sense that people buy it for their dinners and give it out in bulk, uh, Chabad Shluchim or rabbis or communities, the, the, the effect it has on people is absolutely profound because it's literally a lifeline for many people. It's on their bedside table when they're going through that darkest moment. And to me, that was the greatest feedback because when you write a book that's so raw, that's so real, that's only meaningful if it works and you just don't know if it'll work and then you hear that it works, suddenly you're like, wow, thank you Hashem for allowing me to participate in that magic and in that healing. And I have to say positivity bias, I had a similar reaction. I thought coming from Seeds of Wisdom, which was very short, I did not think it would do so well because it's 400 pages. I left out a lot of what I wanted to include just because. Wow. And then here we are, we're, we're entering the fifth print. It sold over 20,000 copies. And it's being translated into Russian, French, Spanish, uh, and, and potentially Hebrew that's, and some other languages. So here we are. You know? That's an incredible. That's incredible. Thank you for breaking that down for me, Mendel. I mean, it, I have it here right in front of me, and it's a, it's a book, Positivity Bias, that I've gifted to many of my friends, uh, people who are Jewish and who aren't, because I feel like there's so much, the way it's written, the way it's, it's compiled, the feel of it even, it's, uh, it's, it's just done so, so well. And, and congratulations on the success of the book, because it's such an important important way of looking in, into life. Is this something, Mendel, that you've always had the ability to look at right. life through, through a positive lens? Or is this something that you acquired through hardship, through, through perhaps something that sh shook you to wake you up and say, hey, there must be another way? That's an excellent question. Uh, I think, again, some books you write from the inside out and some books you write from a more um, passionate, intellectually passionate point of view. So I would say this book is a combination. I was definitely deeply attracted to this idea and I started to see it everywhere in the Rebbe's thought, in the Rebbe's language, in the Rebbe's behavior, his leadership, you know, et cetera. Um, and, it's, and it has really shaped me in many, many ways. Um, so many aspects of the way I interact with my community, my friends, anyone, any human being, are directly impacted by those stories. Like I said, I'm a story learner. So there are so often times where I have a question, how do I deal with this very sensitive, very complex issue? And I'll look back into the book or into my mental database, if you will, because this is a sampling of far more material. And I'll ask myself, well, what would the Rebbe do? How would he behave? And I will try to emulate that. And I think, therefore, it's for me both an expression 
but also it informs me and there's that dance. I want to touch on something you said because you touched on, you said something really powerful. And I think you really, maybe without meaning to, hit the nail on the head and got to the essence of the book. Perhaps, what is the book perhaps. really saying? What's the basic? <laughs> What's the essence of the book? Here's the essence of the book. First of all, if we have time for a joke, let me share with you one of my favorite jokes. Always time for a joke. So, okay. Two men meet on the street. One says, Rappaport, you changed so much. Look at you, you lost weight, you got a facelift, you got a hair transplant. I wouldn't have known it's you. The other fellow says, I'm not Rappaport. The first guy says, look at that. You even changed your name. <laughs> ah, that's fantastic. <laughs> and what, what I love about that book, sorry. By, by the way, I'm working on something on Jewish humor. We'll get to that, please, God, over the next year or two. Uh, interesting. Of course. What's our, what's our rabbi without humor? Come on. It's one and the same. Yeah, but, you know, unfortunately, I find there's not a lot written about Jewish humor. When I say that, I don't mean, you know, the, 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 the statistics, the data, of, or, the, or, the, or the, you know, the, 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 I'm talking more about the, the, the value system behind the jokes. What do Jewish, Jewish jokes say about Jewish thinking and Jewish feeling? That's what I'd like to touch on. And I'm going to, and please God, it will be. But coming back to this, that joke is very much about bias. Here's a guy who has, you know, what prejudice means prejudged. He's prejudged. I mean, he decided that this guy is so-and-so. And no matter what the guy's going to say, he's going to find a way to construe that as a reinforcement of what it is that he thinks he knows. Right? It's like, don't confuse mm. me. You know, I made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the fact. You know, my brother actually, my, our mutual, a very good, you know, best friend yeah. really is a special man, a special. 100%. So he once sent me a text. You know, he used to smoke, he used to chain smoke. So he, he sent me a text that said, look, I recently read about the dangers of smoking. That's it. From now on, no more reading. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So, so that's how we are. We, that's how we are. We come up, you know, it's a certain form of intellectual laziness or emotional laziness, because if every moment, if, if, we, if, we don't, if we don't prejudice, if we don't stereotype, if we don't create patterns, if we don't reinforce in every moment what we think we already know, life could be incredibly draining. I mean, imagine going into a situation which you know nothing about. It requires yes. so much more alacrity and vigilance and, and intellectual and emotional um, um, uh, um, uh, energy, energy. You have to energy. really bring everything you have to bear. Well, that's, so, let me ask so you that. But on, but on that, on that, going back to that joke with Rappaport, where is that line between naivete and positivity? You know, where is that line between like everything's great, uh, like beautiful, awesome, fantastic, but like or like where like, hey, you know, let's be real and grounded in reality and actually looking life through a positive lens. Okay, so let me come back to that for a moment because I want to just come finish the point about rapid sure. and I'm going to come to that point. So, so the point is this, okay, here's the point. We each have a bias. You know, some people hear the word bias and they say, oh, no, I'm not biased because the word bias today in media or modern vernacular uh, is, 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 <clears throat> is associated with something negative. Bias merely means you have a certain leaning. Is a parent biased towards their children? Yes, I would hope so. A healthy parent is positively biased towards their child. Incidentally, if they weren't, their child would have a, and they would have a very difficult relationship. Are you positively biased towards yourself? Yes, if you're not, there's something unhealthy about your relationship with yourself. 
the same as with your spouse, the same as with the people who are inside your circle, your inner circle of life. You need that positivity bias because without it, life would be unbearably difficult living with yourself or your significant other. So a bias is not good or bad. It just means a leaning. And a bias could be good or it could be bad. It really depends on the context. So that's point number one. Critical to appreciate, first of all, bias is not fundamentally negative. Secondly, and this comes from a story of the Rebbe, which when I heard the story, that's when the title dropped for me. And by the way, title is very important. And people say, don't judge a book by its cover. We only say that because we do judge books by its cover. So yes. the Rebbe told a journalist, a Jewish journalist who basically said, our, our paper is independent and objective and we don't have any bias and, and we'll write about anything, including Jewish affairs that are not pleasant to write about. That was the context. I didn't include that because I didn't feel in the book it was necessary to add the detail. Again, I was trying to practice positivity bias, but we're just talking here in a casual way. So the Rebbe told him, independent perhaps, but objective, it's impossible. Every human being has a bias. And what that means is it's a, we each have a personality, we have an upbringing, we have a value system, we have a belief system, we have a, a, a certain um, life experience, and all of that forms and formulates the prism by which we see, we construe, we contextualize, we react and interact with reality. So the point of the book is we each have a bias, and oftentimes your bias doesn't serve you. So try to reset that bias, because by resetting it, it will become your life will be enriched in the life of those around you too. So here's the key point. We have a, a bias is not necessarily bad. We each have a bias. By the way, social scientists tell us we naturally have a negativity bias. This was part of our evolution, if you will. Remember, if you're focusing on eating the berries, the tiger comes out of the corner and eats you alive. Mm -hmm. if, and, but we still have that negativity bias. If you have made 10 interactions with somebody, nine of which are um, good, one is bad, which is the one you spend time thinking about? 100%. And, and that's a it's that one comment. It's that one, it's that one comment on the video. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the one. I mean, there was a thousand good stuff, but it's the one guy who, 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 who was cynical. So that's how we operate. If you've got 10 compliments but one critique, you're thinking about the critique. That's the negative error. The problem, so the third point is we naturally have a negativity bias. The problem with that is that the side effect of it is that we walk around in a state of hypervigilance and reactivity. We apl apply the same degree of, of, of hyperreactivity to something minimal or insignificant in rel relative terms, the way we once reacted to real danger. I mean, how many people deal with life and death danger on a daily basis? And yet when you stub your toe or when that even the deal falls through or your internet goes down, we react literally as if something life-threatening just happened. So point three is that we have a negativity bias. Point four is that we're overreacting. It's very bad for our immune system and our stress and so forth. Incidentally, there's research, the BBC just suggests that um, optimists and positive thinkers live, listen to this, between 11 and 15% longer than their pessimistic peers. That's radical, Mayor. That means to say this book is not just a good book, meaning the Rebbe's teachings on this matter are not just nice, they can lengthen your life. I mean, what wouldn't we do to live 10, 11 to 15% longer? We would sign up to any gym, we would pay any amount of money. What's being yeah, recommended here is shift that negativity bias to the positivity bias. And the final point, because this is to your word, is it is possible. So here's what I want to conclude this monologue. Excuse me, Mayor, you got me going. Um, <laughs> I love the, I love the passion. <laughs> so here's the thing. There's a beautiful little personal um, comment the Rebbe made. 
And by the way, we know very little about the Rebbe's personal life because he didn't share much. So here we have a really nice, amazing nugget where he told one of his Hasidim, alluding to his determination to see things positively as stemming from his harrowing a negative, difficult path. And he said, here's the words. I worked on myself to always look at things in a positive light. Otherwise, I could not have survived. And it's this deceptively simple statement that encapsulates the premise of the book, namely that living a positive, life of positivity is a matter of choice, not circumstance. And it derives from perspective, not from personality, right? One, one wise person said, reality is created by the mind. We can change our reality by changing our mind. It's not the events of our life that shape us. It's the meanings and the stories we tell ourselves and assign to those events. And once this idea is pointed out, you know, it's impossible to miss because hundreds of stories and letters and anecdotes in the, in the, in the book bring this point to life, how the Rebbe's positivity bias illuminated every corner of his thoughts, every nuance of his speech, and infused every action, reaction, and interaction with the power of positive living. 100%. I so just, you could I just, choose, that's my point. You could choose it, and, and it comes down to a choice. It's something that I actually talk about briefly. I'm coming out, God willing, with a, uh, a book about optimism geared to children. And within that, it, we really uh, talk about one of the main points we bring up. Yeah, 100%. We talk about is the choice. It is, we break it down into a very simple antidote to my own life. And, but one of the main focuses, of course, is that it's a choice. Obviously, talk to resign good, think good, and it'll be good. Uh, the power in which that, you know, one could really attract, and not just attract great things to them, but really see the life through up this positive lens, which I think in, within your book you talk about what someone asked the Rebbe and the Rebbe expounded upon the idea, what's the difference between uh, faith and, 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 and trust, right? Amuna and Betachon. And, you know, faith is, is of course, an extremely powerful level uh, where one could say, okay, there's these problems and, you know, it's for the good and Hashem, got, God's got my back. With Betachon, it's not just, it's not, it's not a problem. However, it's even something more strong than that. It's, it's an opportunity to grow from. So it's a, a challenge, an opportunity. It's a stepping stone. It's not a, a stone you carry on your back, but it's a stone you can step upon to level up to the next level. Uh, so you mentioned a, a couple of great points there. How is it you, um, someone who is perhaps right now going through something that is negative and, and something that it's grounded in reality, something bad, quote unquote, is happening, or perhaps we should say not good, you know, using the vocabulary of, of positivity. Um, what, what can they do right now to really shift that, that bias? Like, you know, it's how do we shift? How do we move from a place of negativity to bias? We are geared, like you said, whether it's through, you know, hush, you know, through the creation of God, if you want to believe in evolution because of the lion in the bush, how do we change our way of natural being to a one that, that will be healthier for us to live longer and to have a brighter effect in our own lives and the world around us? That's a great question. It's a great question. I want to answer you with two points. Number one is, you know, once someone asked me, well, tell me, what's the whole, what is the yeshiva education really like? What is it all about? So I said, yeshiva education really is like boot camp. It's like, um, it's like the Navy SEAL training. You know what I mean? It's about, it's all, it's, it's really a, a, um, a period of intensive and immersive training. And the real battlefield ultimately is life itself. And what do I mean by that? Essentially, this book is an ex exposition and, and it's a elucidation of Hasidic thinking. That's the reality. The Rebbe embodied that and took it to its outer limits. But this is all rooted in the Balshemto's radical positivity. And 
the point is when a person is on, let's say a person stumbles onto a battlefield, if they don't have the training, it's, it's hard to expect of them to perform in that moment. They're gonna be overcome by fear. They're gonna be paralyzed by anxiety. They're gonna be completely rooted in shock. So that's not the time or place to start telling them about it's all good, life on some level is, you know, there's a plan, you just don't see it, you have inner reservoirs of strength, find a way to use this as a springboard, etc. On the battlefield, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity to undergo instantaneous training. So that's what education is all about. That's what the yeshiva system is. That's what a, a life lived, immersed in these teachings again and again. They marinate us, they incubate us, and they condition us so that God forbid, when we experience things that are not revealed good, all of the training kicks in. Suddenly, we're able to draw on all of those powerful teachings that we spend so much time internalizing. That's the critical thing. Remember, all of these teachings are what I would call a divine perspective. But naturally, we have a human perspective. And the human and divine perspectives are not naturally aligned. In fact, very often they're, they're in conflict. So what this book tries to achieve is allow you to make your way slowly but surely through stories and anecdotes and letters and talks of the Rebbe and practices aligning yourself slowly but surely towards a more divine perspective because when you adopt that a divine perspective then you are then you have the training and and it's and it's actually borne out in data that people who are religious and when i say religious here i don't mean outwardly religious i mean inwardly religious i mean real faith believers they suffer less from heart attacks and many other physiological ailments because of their, their strong, deep faith. So that's really point one. Now, point two, this is something that also goes back to the point you asked, which was an excellent question. How do you distinguish between naivete and positivity, et cetera, et cetera? So a very important distinction between this book and other feel-good positive books you will pick up in any airport lounge um, is that this book is not a book about psychological positivity as much as, as, much, as much as it is a book about theological positivity. That's a critical point. A lot of the book is psychologically beneficial. That's clear. You don't have to be religious to enjoy much of the book. However, the underlying premise of the book is that this form and, and this variety of positivity is not about me telling myself a story that will make me feel better as important as that is. And by the way, I'm a big believer, whatever works, tell yourself the story that'll work for you because your life will be better as a result. You don't have to be this cynical, um, you know, agnostic about, about you know, you, you know let, better be naive and happy than I, I personally view in terms of a practical way of living and the people around you, than, than, than be sophisticated and cynical and miserable and be miserable for everyone around you. But okay, let's put that aside for a moment. What is this book really telling you? It's not telling you, tell yourself that the, that, 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 that person is, has a good core inside of them. It's not saying, tell yourself that, because if that's the basis, really, why? But maybe they aren't good, or track good. It's not saying, think good and it will be good, because that will help you get through this painful period of anxiety and unknown. It's not saying that because on the basis of what should I think it could be good, it could turn out bad. And by the way, from a strategic point of view, um, 
expecting the best is not always a good formula for mental health because you're setting yourself up for disappointment potentially. So some would argue that from a psychological point of view, it's better to expect the worst because then you can only be pleasantly surprised. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So you have to appreciate that. <clears throat> Sorry. These ideas are not just psychological, though they have a psychological um, <clears throat> benefit. This book is about the Hasidic perspective on reality. What is real? That's a critical point. What is real? Because we subscribe to a whole set of things we sell ourselves as real, but in fact, who says that they're real? You know, it's ironic that For we example, call reality. I'll give you a simple example. Do you know how many planes landed safely last year? Safely, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't know. 140 million planes landed safely last year. Now, if you stop the average person and you, and you, and you ask them what they think about planes, they'll be much more focused on the five or six that didn't make it, okay? Right. Correct. What am I right. trying to say? If you ask, I'll, I'll put it a little differently. They, 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 uh, they interviewed br the British public and they asked them, what, you know, do you think the world is progressing? Okay, simple question. Do you think the world, do you think your children will inhabit a better world than the world in which you receive from your parents? 5% of Brits thought the world is progressing. 95% thought wow. it's regressing. Oh now, gosh. Mayor, you're in America. You're a positive guy. You know, Americans are super positive. Here's the amazing thing about Americans. A total of 6% in America thought the world was progressing. Think about that for a moment. Is that reality? So the last chapter of the book, it's called Where Is Our World Heading? And I take example after example after example of the most fundamental aspects of our world and progress and demonstrate how our world, we truly live in unprecedented times. You know, the word unprecedented was used with Corona. It's a, raw, it's a false use of the word. It's not unprecedented. You know, it is unprecedented. Here's what is unprecedented. What's that? That 90% um, that of the world is literate that the average lifespan has grown from the average of 30 to the average now 70, 80, depending on which country you're in, that, the, that actually, despite the current terrible racial tensions that have, that have uh, spilled over, the reality is that society is more tolerant than it ever was before by any objective measure. And in fact, Mayor, I would argue that this incredible reaction, cross-communal, really this, this visceral, passionate and sincere and apolitical reaction from the masses. I'm not talking about those type of opportunists. That demonstrates the degree to which society is sick and tired of injustice and discrimination, etc. And I could go on. Um, there's great books if you want to read about them. There's a book called Progress by uh, Johan Norberg. There's a book by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment. Uh, now we interviewed him here uh, some a uh, month ago or so. There's a, and many others, there's a book by Hans Rosen called Factfulness. Bill Gates was the first guest editor for the Time Magazine in its 90 or so year history. And he was the editor of the 2018 edition in January. And he invited the world's top thinkers about world progress to write about the way in which this world is currently unprecedentedly positive. And he brought the world's top experts and they produced that edition all around 
the theme of educated, data-driven optimism and positivity. And that's the point I want to make. People tell you the re realistic. What is realistic? What's realistic is, okay, follow the data. If you follow the data, you will find that this world is unprecedentedly positive on so many areas, including the, the most essential ones that, about, that, that, we, that make human living uh, meaningful and possible. So that's my response to you. Now, from a spiritual point of view, what is reality? What is real? And that's the critical point. Because this book is about, at the end of the day, producing core principles about how we view history, how we view another human being, how we view um, a, a person's underlying versus conscious uh, expression, and there's a disconnect and dissonance there very often, etc. So it talks to a fundamental goodness within all, within humanity, within your own self, within, and the, in the, the trajectory of history, there is a storyline, there's a plot, there's a positive culmination and climax, which we are currently undergoing as it happens, as the Rebbe taught. And then what happens is, well, I'm not telling myself a story because that's not ultimately always helpful. I'm actually buying into a belief system that is divinely ordained and divinely gifted to us called Jewish spiritual wisdom. So there's a very, very big difference because then what's happening is when a person goes through a difficult time, they're able to ask themselves very different, well, you know, I don't want to generalize actually, I have to say, I don't want to generalize in terms of the answer to your question because you, it was a general question. How does a person, um, you know, see positive and negative? It depends dramatically on the person, the situation and so forth. Fair enough. So, so possibly, maybe we'll, I'll hit it from another direction. One of the one of the revolutionary ideas in the Tanya, which you talked about in a, in a short clip, uh, which I highly recommend people if they want to look into more on TorahCafe.com. You talked about how you know what's very interesting about the Tanya. It's it's not about uh, saying shut down your emotions, look at everything, you know, in a very great way. Don't but get rid of your instincts towards, you know, perhaps character defects and such. But rather, uh, what, what it does bring to light is that your body is this, imagine your body, your emotional state as a house. These, these ideas, these thoughts, these emotions come knocking at the door. You have the choice, your training, you have a choice to allow these emotions, these ideas to come into your home or not. You can't perhaps stop them coming knocking at the door, but you have the choice of realizing having that awareness and allowing them to come in, hang out, and then leave. Uh, sort of like what Rumi says as well about, you know, your house, your, your body is a house and, and all your feelings are emotions. Now, Mike, Mike, my question to you is, 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 is there a way for somebody to, because the fact is, if, you know, if these knock, 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 eventually it gets annoying. So they come in, they can break down the door. What can someone do to perhaps have a bodyguard in front of that door or to have build a few more structures between their own home, their sanctuary, and these right. perhaps negative ideas to pull them in? That's an excellent question. So there's, 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 uh, there's two points over there um, I want to just make here. So um, point one is diet, okay? We're so, um, we're so uh, attuned right now to physical dieting, to physical fitness and well-being. And that's a major revolution over the past few decades that today is any self-respecting modern human being is a member of at least three gyms the one he goes to, the one he doesn't go to, and the one he, you know, 
etc. So that you know, we, we're eating. You know, talking about talking about talking about jokes, Mendel. I'm sure perhaps some of the listeners know this one, but talking about the one that he doesn't go to, the story of which you know this guy gets stuck on an island, and the rescue comes after a couple of years, and this Jewish guy comes on board, and as we're leaving, pulling away from the island. The rescuers, you know, they they look back and they see these two buildings, and they ask this man, "What is? What are those two buildings?" And he points to the one on the left. And he says, "That's the synagogue I go to." And they ask, "Okay, that's the one you go to. What about the one on the right?" He's like, "That's the synagogue I don't go to." Fantastic, exactly. That's a classic. So <laughs> very good. So the point is, and we're all so health conscious. We're eating, you know, we're we're going we're going vegan, or we're going organic, or we're into you know flax, you know, whatever it is, you know, the sea, you know. Anyways, you got. Yes. So, so we, we need to do what we, what we start, what we need to start doing is thinking in terms of emotional, psychological and spiritual hygiene and fitness in the same way we do physical. It's very simple. What we know now about dieting is that it's not willpower alone that creates a successful diet because at the end of the day, we, we have a complex relationship with willpower, right? And self-discipline. And sometimes we're depleted and we don't have the energy. So what, of course, Mayor, is the obvious solution. You got to get rid of the triggers, to use the language of addiction. Get rid of the triggers, because if the trigger's there, when you're weak, when you're vulnerable, you're going to go for the trigger. It's very simple. The Talmud puts it beautifully. It says, it's not the mouse that is responsible for, you know, eating what's in your home. It's the whole in the wall that allowed the mouse through, okay? Mm-hmm. That, that's the point I'm trying to talk about for a moment about environment, a holistic approach, lifestyle. That's a critical word. For example, if you don't have the extra calorie stuff around, it's more likely you're not gonna have it. It's just a simple fact of convenience and we are very convenient driven people. That's one aspect, but there's more. Imagine if every day in the morning you listen to a podcast about physical well-being. Suddenly, you now like the Great Day podcast, maybe. Absolutely, that's exactly right, etc., etc. So that's the point I want to make. If you want to protect your emotional hygiene, here are a few practical tips. Here are a few practical tips. Now, talking about coming into my home, you just got a little uh, sense of how that works. But here are a few practical tips. Tips. Let's say you have a friend, okay, And, and that friend, whenever you spend time with them. They're busy telling you about the beautiful things in their life, their vacations, their latest gadget they bought, their children's success, their loving marriage, their amazing business, you know, uh, achievements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, how does that make you feel when you, when you leave that meeting? And imagine then they also further turn that conversation into, and what about you? Or imagine you spend time with certain people that they love to gossip. The thing about gossip is, Gossip is a bit like a piece of good herring. It's really enjoyable when you eat it, but it really, really creates serious after effects like heartburn in the aftermath. I think gossip, Lashon Hara, is a bit like that. It feels maybe very enjoyable in the moment, but you know, when you leave that, 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 that encounter of gossip, that meeting of gossip, you, something doesn't sit well inside of you. It's like there's a certain sense of um, inner discomfort soul discomfort, just because we have that spiritual energy that craves positivity. So when you, if you're spending time with people that make you feel small, that make you feel drained, emotionally drained, that make you feel diminished and inadequate, 
and then make you feel like you're like, focused on what you don't have and what they have, stop spending time with those people. Cut them out of your life. Remove them from your database, from your phone, unless they're, you know, you can't. Okay, I'm not, then you have to regulate yourself and your interaction with them. That's an example of choice, like you said. Choose the environment because when you're with them, it's gonna bring out the worst in you. That's one thing. Before you go to bed at night, we have this incredible device, okay, which is a, it's so powerful, but it's also such a, it steals our presence of mind, our joy. It's just shocking how, how destructive it can be. One aspect is when you just do, first of all, you know, social media, limit your intake. Very simple. Things are good and bad depending on quantity, okay? So social media might be good, but limit yourself. Another thing, when you're with, before you go to bed, don't read all the latest statistics on suicide, on homicide, on, on rioting, on, you know, on, on earthquakes. Don't read negative painful and, um, and, and alarming news because your entire sleep of which you, you, you depend on so much for the rest of the next day is going to be deeply affected. So I'm just sharing with you very simple things in the same way when you approach physical well-being and dieting and health, you put not only remove certain triggers, which is essential, you also create a holistic approach. What are you, what's the messaging you listen to throughout the day? What are, you know, like, you force yourself to be, to be walking yeah. more. Have the app that tells you how many steps you took. Apply that in an emotional and into, and into a hygienic and a spirit, uh, emotional, excuse me, psychological, spiritual state, and you will see yourself completely transformed over time. Share with you one little story. There was a chassid who was very arrogant. He came to his Rebbe and he says, Rebbe, I'm so arrogant. I can't stop you know, myself and grandizing projections. So his, and, uh, and he said, and it really creates me very bad um, character. So his Rebbe said, I would like you to fast for 600 times. Fast 600, he said, Rebbe, fast 600 times. I, I wouldn't survive. How can I not eat 600 days? And his Rebbe said, I'm not talking about fasting from food. I'm talking about fasting from speech. The next 600 times that you're tempted to say a word that's negative, hold back. The Hasidim would say they could not recognize this man from before this exercise to after this exercise. I think we don't give enough credence and, and we don't give enough weight to the power of words, to the, to the, to the power of, of environment, to the people we spend time with, to the media that we read, to the music we listen to, to the videos we watch. Watch, of, so what I'm basically saying is design your life in a very positive manner. So, socialize with positive people. Listen to positive podcasts like Mayor, Mayor Kay's um, wonderful podcast. Read positive literature. Watch videos of positive people. You will see, literally, if you try this for one week, you cut out the negative people, the negative media intake, and you introduce positive, your life will be different. If you do this for even one week, let alone one month, let alone a year. 
100%. That's tremendous. And it's, it's a beautiful way of putting it because that is true. There's a certain fascination that we have towards physical health. And I think it's because we could visually see these changes. We not it's right. besides a fat, we can see the muscles grow. We can see the tummy go thinner. Right. We can see the change. However, sometimes internally, it's much harder to gauge that or to see that um, yeah. in a very quick manner. But we, it's as important to any physical more diet important. and more important, as more you say, important. than more important mental and emotional diet. Much more important, much more important, because at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, what gives us the deepest sense of happiness and satisfaction is th are things like purpose, like meaning, like, 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 um, like, uh, uh, you know, mission. And, and that comes from the inner world, not from our state of physical, you know, physical strength, etc. As it happens, Mayor, I have to say, many people have mistakenly directed their sense of meaning and purpose into the physical vessel of their being, which is their body. And it's unfortunately really, for me at least, somewhat saddening. If a person's entire life has been reduced to how much weight they can lift, you'll excuse me for saying this, I mean, as, 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 a, as wonderful as it is, I feel like they're missing out on a much deeper purpose that they can really access if they were focused on the right place. So, the question is, you have to ask the right questions and then you have to look in the right location. Here's a good joke. There's a guy, a guy who, who's drunk and he lost his keys and he's looking underneath a lamppost for his keys. And the police officer comes to help him and the police officer tells him, sir, um, you know, where did you last see your keys? Did you lose them here? He said, no, I didn't leave, lose them here. I lost them across the street. So he says, then why are you looking here? He said, because here the light is better. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's great, but also so true. Oh, wow. So the point is, we, are you looking at the, in the right place to, to solve the, the issues that you, that you recognize? So the first thing is recognize that the importance of emotional, psychological, and spiritual health. Okay? Let's to be clear. Because, Mayor, the point is that while I talked about how amazing the world is on many levels, from poverty to literacy to tolerance to, to even nuclear diminishment by the way and wars there's so few wars today relative to even 50 100 years ago when it comes to mental health this is where it's very complex there's much more loneliness there's much more suicide uh, much more uh, unfortunately right there's much yes. more um etc etc so that's the area we now need to shift our focus to and our mental emotional and spiritual health are all interlinked that's a critical point i want to tell you Mental and emotional health is deeply served by spiritual health, which we can talk about perhaps on a separate occasion, a much more comprehensive discussion around those, that aspect. But coming back to your point, it's yeah. eminently possible and practical to become more positive. It's a choice. It comes from perspective. It comes from training and conditioning. And it comes from designing your life. That's why I use the word design. In the same way you design a home for, for the aesthetic benefit, etc., and, 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 you know, similarly design your own life with, um, with, 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 with a strategic and calculated and mindful approach to well-being. Beautifully said, Mendel. Thank you. That's, that's, that's fantastic. And I do want to start closing up the podcast. Is there anything that, uh, from your book that you've written, which I'm actually quite curious, by the way, Mendel, we talked about you being a rabbi and all. Why on the, the cover of the book, it says Mendel Kalmus and not Rabbi Mendel Kalmus and some of the, uh, your other books, some of your articles say you're Rabbi Mendel Kalmuson. That's a very good question. Very good question. Um, the answer is because 
I think when, the, when, a, when, a, when a book has a title with a rabbi in it, for a lot of people, it automatically shuts them down. For some people, uh, it, it opens them up. You know, they want to hear what a rabbi has to say. But for some people, they assume that, okay, this is going to be a sermon. There's someone who's preaching to me. And even in my personal interactions with people, people know me either as Mendel or Rabbi Mendel. And I think that it's very important because there's, it's been more accessible. And in reality, that's what I try to achieve throughout everything I do. A key word in what I do is access. You know, the reality is the people who make the biggest difference in history and our world are the people who give us access, both in the secular and the Jewish world. You know, mm -hmm. Steve Jobs didn't create the technology. He gave us access to it. You know, in his obituary, I think someone said, you put 250 million computers in people's pockets. And, and who do we know? We know Google, we know Sergey Brin, we know WhatsApp, we know Amazon, Bazos, and so forth. In other words, the people that change the way in which we have access to shopping, to news, to social life, etc. Jewishly also, by the way, the ones who make the greatest impact are the ones who give us access. Rashi, Rashi literally says, my job is to, is to teach the plain meaning to the five-year-old. Rambam, what did Rambam do? He made Mishnah Torah. He took the Talmud, and he turned it into a code of law. In a, the Baal Shem Tov gave Jewish experience, gave Jews access to Jewish experience. The Lubavitcher Rebbe made Chabad houses, gave Judy access to the entire gamut of Jewish people, access to their heritage, to their soul, and to Jewish wisdom and community. So my mission, personally, is to try to give access, as much access as possible, to the, the beautiful gifts I received. And part of that is thinking about the viewer, the reader, the audience. And so that's a simple, simple way of putting it. In other words, yeah, it, yeah. Is there, that's fair enough. Is there a, a, uh, a, a story or a joke from your book that stands out that I know it's sort of making you choose one of your babies here, but is there something that stands out that we could leave uh, the listener with uh, a, a quote or a story that, that really resonates with you? Let me share very, very quickly. Let me share a few of my favorite stories. I'll be very, very brief. One story is about the guy who, is, um, who comes to the Rebbe and he says, I have a very difficult time with my spiritual life. My friends have it easier. And the Rebbe said, look, imagine two people um, each on a ladder one of them is towards the top, the other on the bottom, which is higher? He said, of course, the guy who's higher up the ladder. And the Rebbe said, well, actually, not necessarily. It really depends. He said, what do you mean? He says, depends. Because if the guy who's at the top is on his way down and the guy who's at the bottom is on his way up, then while literally at this moment, one is higher than the other, in terms of, of, of eventuality, in terms of, you know, trajectory. Direction. Direction, the one who's lower. So it's not about where you are, it's where you're going. That's one important message of the Rebbe. Um, another beautiful story, then a letter the Rebbe wrote to someone who said, I'm not a Shabbos observer. The Rebbe said something like, yet, okay, yet. So never write off any aspect of growth. Don't tell yourself, I'm such and not that. There's a lot of research about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Another story, someone came to the Rebbe and he said about Shabbos, it's impossible for me to keep all of Shabbos. So the Rebbe told him something so beautiful. The Rebbe said to him, look, if you find yourself going, first of all, you should try, of course, to keep shopping. But if you find yourself going to work, um, every time you do so, go a minute late and add another minute of Shabbos. What an amazing approach. It's not all or nothing. Um, if you, you, can't, I mean, you may not be able to do everything, but you can always do something. And that's another radical approach of the Rebbe. Another, and that's very powerful because when Hashem speaks to Moshe, remember at the burning bush, and Moshe really expresses feelings of inadequacy, Hashem yeah. says to him, Ma what is in your hand? And he 
he says the staff and the story unfolds. But the powerful thing I think God, God was telling Moshe is, what is in your hand? Don't look at what you don't have or what you, gifts you don't have. Take what you do have and share that with the world. You know, Mayor, you're such an amazing example of that. Take what you have and you have such beauty and such power and share it with the world. Everyone you, has something. Do you go about complimenting yourself again, Mendel? There you go. But it's really true. I mean, Mayor, look, let's be very serious. You are speaking to millions or hundreds of millions, I should say, of people. And I, and I, I, I really, I, I, I envy your ability to impact the world. And I emulate and aspire to that. And please, God, one day you'll give me a lesson on, on social media. I just joined Facebook two weeks ago. All right. Those who are listening, do be sure if you found value in this podcast to give Mendel a follow on Facebook. Is it Rabbi Mendel Kalmason or Mendel Kalmason? Whatever makes your whatever makes you feel more connected, and whatever opens the door. Final story: The Rebbe once was uh, was uh, someone came, someone wanted to see the Rebbe, and there was uh, you know you you know as you know the Rebbe saw so many people that there was a long line, and so he felt he was going to ambush the Rebbe, so to speak, by going through his home. He put oh. the Rebbe left to work, and he did so. And he spent seven minutes with the Rebbe talking about his issue. And then the Rebbe went into the car. And afterwards, two yeshiva students crossed the road because they were always observing the Rebbe. And they gave him a major chalik, uh, as we say in, in Yiddish. They gave him a hard time for... for, for... Hard time. They rebuked him very seriously. And he felt terrible about this, so much so that he wrote a letter to the Rebbe apologizing for what he did, for stealing the Rebbe's time and breaking protocol. So the Rebbe responded with two points. First of all, the Rebbe said, the time that these yeshiva boys were admonishing you was actually time they were meant to be in yeshiva. So they were actually in and of themselves violating. <laughs> yeah. So don't take them too seriously, first of all, the Rebbe said. Second of all, the Rebbe said like this, the Holy Baal Shem Tov teaches us that um, a soul can come into this world for 70, 80 years the entire life journey is all in order to do one favor for another human being. And then the Rebbe says to him, who knows, perhaps my soul came into the world for that one encounter we had earlier today. Wow. And what's powerful about the story, and I live with that story, is what the Rebbe is really saying, if you observe the Rebbe's life, is that every single encounter, the Rebbe would ask, maybe this is the one. And if we can approach every encounter, every day, every opportunity, every email, every phone call, as if perhaps this is the one, we will be switched on to, to purpose and meaning and mission all of our days. Now, maybe it's not practical for all of us or possible all the time, but that's the bar. That's the teaching. That's the gold standard. And that's, I think, something we can each live with. There should be a time in our day, a time in our year, a time in our month where we're switched on fully, uninhibitedly. In any event, let me bless you, Mayor, to continue to inspire and touch millions of lives. I congratulate you on the book. And Thank super you. happy if I could be helpful in any way. Um, I don't know how, but if you, if, 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 I don't know what, pro, what stage of the process it is, but it's such an amazing theme. I encourage you to read a book by Dr. Edith Eager, who is the ballerina of Auschwitz, called The Choice. 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 You'll find some incredible... Uh, incredible and rich uh, you know, themes there that might be uh, in, in important. But such an amazing idea and talking to children, wow. I'm super psyched to read it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mendel. Appreciate it, thank you for your time, for your insights, for your wisdom and really being a light 
and, and showing, uh, leading the way, bringing down the Rebbe's teachings and also with your own beautiful way of doing so, uh, expressing them to us. Uh, really looking out for the next book. Do we have any, any little snippet of what it's going to be called or what, when that may be coming to us? Your next the book? The book, the, title, the book is all about um, Hebrew words and what they say about Jewish ideas because Hebrew is very different to other languages. Because other languages, the words we use are arbitrary. You know, I can, I, we could call a table a cup and a cup table and we would be able to communicate perfectly well. Hebrew is incredibly descriptive. So the word tells you what the thing is. Just for example, an interesting one, the word for a dog in Hebrew is kelev. And, and, and kelev actually comes from kulolev, which means all heart. And that tells us a lot about the characteristic of the dog. And many other, like, wow, incredible examples. But that's, I've selected 50 big ideas in Judaism, and we're teaching those ideas by way of the words. Um, things like success, happiness, love, soul, human being, etc. And you see Judaism's radical perspective on all of those ideas and how it's shaped the way Jews think. So the title of the book is The People of the Word, 50 Words That Shaped Jewish thinking. Wow, I sense a, ne- I, I sense a bestseller. That's going to be <laughs> tough. And we'll talk about it in the future, please, God. I look forward to it. Uh, until then, I uh, love, my dear. Likewise, love likewise. You. Thank you. I can't you. wait to see you in person, give you a big beer hug, one of your famous Mayor K hugs, special edition, post you know Corona. That's going to be big. I look and, forward and, to it. And, and I, I, I look forward to taking a walk down Whaley or Norton, or Colony Road, or Ellsworth. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> or New Haven. Yes, right. Shout out to New Haven, where it all began. Likewise, likewise, Mendel. Keep shouting your light, my man. Thank you so, so much. All the best. Hatzlacha.